Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel, Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Well done, choir. You guys did a great job. Turn with me, please, in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, where we'll pick up our study, moving our way verse by verse through this biography of the life of Christ. Also, I'll I'll draw your attention in the bulletin. uh, It's 4th of July, Independence Day this week, um, so we're actually not going to have the Bible study on Wednesday evening, which is the 3rd of July. Uh, It is fireworks in town and things like that, and um, I'm going. So uh, (laughs) hopefully you'll come uh, as well. Should be a fun time. Um, Which town has the best fireworks in our area? I don't think it's Ewing, to be quite frank, Um, but yeah, good, okay, very good. Um, Wow, we need prayer now. Father, thank you for uh, this opportunity. Thank you for the gospel of Mark. Thank you for the gospel of Matthew and Luke and John and the insight. Lord, uh, each of these books gives us into the person of Christ and the ministry of Christ and the way that he interacted with people just like us and and Lord as we sit and we we consider them we can picture ourselves Lord uh, on some of those hills or beside some of those dirt roads and um, set there near the temple and Lord what a gift you've given us to be able to do that and Lord these words they bless us we fall in love with Christ all over again seeing him interact with Uh, people like us and and so Lord we do pray that you would minister through your word to us this morning Lord bring us to those dusty fields and places there of Israel that we may encounter him again in a fresh way we pray in Jesus name Amen. amen well today's our fifth Sunday and that means we got some little people in here uh, in grades first through sixth, fifth Sunday of the each time it happens during the year, we bring in little people. Let me hear the little people. Give me a little shout out. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that was pretty good. All right. I think that was Susan Ruckman, but still, it was good. <laughs> you know. Anyhow, uh, so it's fifth Sunday, so I'm going to do my best. I haven't taught little people in a long time. I, actually, frankly, I never taught little people. Uh, so we'll have some fun with that. It should be exciting. Today is the baptism. I, I do encourage you. We'll have food going immediately after service. I think it's going to start right as service is ending. Um, so you can grab a burger, hot dogs, things like that, any of the sides that are there. And then around 1245, we're going to have a baptism. We have about five or six people, I believe, that are getting baptized. So um, come, stay, encourage them. We'll give you food so you don't go crazy and get angry with people uh, waiting. Uh, and then we'll just have a, a good time of fellowship. Baptism is sweet. Uh, It's neat to watch that step of faith in another person's life, but it's even encouraging to your own faith because you go back to that time and you remember that time when you you stepped up and you said, you know what, I love the Lord and I'm going to follow the Lord wherever he may take me. And so if you can hang around for that, that'd be great. We'll have some other games and activities as well. Uh, But today, as I said this morning, we are in the Gospel of Mark. And last week we, we did an intro to the book. We looked at the first 10 or 11 verses of the book and we spent some time considering... Jesus's baptism and why would Jesus have to be baptized and the purpose of his baptism and and in that you can go back you can listen to it you can read it yourself here but you recall that immediately following Jesus's baptism which is distinct and different from what we're going to do today and we spent some time trying to unpack that it was essentially Jesus identifying with humanity I'm about to do what I came to do God in the flesh here on the earth that I might give my life on behalf of humanity and immediately following that baptism as he comes out of the water we saw that that decision was approved essentially by both the father and by the holy spirit so god the father god the son god the holy spirit all involved in this interaction we see in mark chapter 1 verse 10 first the holy spirit confirms or ratifies jesus's decision it says there that he descended upon him jesus in the form of a dove and then the the father himself And he declares, you are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. And I I spent time last week pointing out that this just wasn't a situation where the father is like, I really like you. You've done really well these last 30 years. But well pleased is in the sense of this is the Messiah. 
I'm well pleased, I accept, or this is the one that, who will go and save his people from their sin. Well, that's last week. That was Jesus' baptism. Now, that one whom John declared, as, as he quoted the Old Testament prophets, that one who would come and save people, where he says, prepare the way of the Lord and so on, he has now been presented for ministry. He presented himself. And he identified with humanity, but he was also identified to humanity. As the Father would say, this is the one. And immediately following that, notice he's driven into the wilderness. Now, in our minds, wilderness is like the woods somewhere. Um, wilderness for them would be the desert. And so he was driven now into the desert there, into the place that I mentioned last week was called, uh, also called the place of devastation. It was just this desert land. And he's driven out there. And let's look at what Mark says happens. Verse 12, it says, Now the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, the desert. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Forty days out there in the desert, 40 days of fasting, 40, a 40-day 40 period of time of testing by the devil. Now, Mark does not give us as much detail as some of the other Gospels do. And so you've, I'm sure you've read Matthew, or I think maybe you've read Matthew, you've read Luke, Luke's account. They talk about the three different temptations that came against Jesus here, and they list three specific ones. You recall them. One, turn these stones into bread. You haven't eaten in 40 days, you're hungry. You know, do this miracle just to benefit yourself. Turn these stones into bread. The other one was this test of the Father. You know, let's bring ourselves here, go up to the top of the temple, throw yourself off, because the scripture says that the angels will bear you up and they'll protect you. And Jesus says, don't put the Lord your God to the test. And then there's the last one there. Look, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth if you only bow down and worship me, Satan says. And Jesus there, he withstands that temptation as well. And so from those gospels, we learn three specific ways in which he was tempted. Uh, and in each one of those instances, how did Jesus deal with them? He deals with them as a man would deal with them. He doesn't use any supernatural powers to deal with those temptations. In each one of those instances, he points to the word of God and he relies upon the Holy Spirit. And he's victorious. And so he becomes his pattern to us, this model to us. Jesus didn't withstand those temptations solely because he was God. He could, would have and did but he's a man, and he approached it as a man can approach temptation, as a woman can approach temptation. We do not need to give in. We'll talk about that a little more. He becomes a model then for you and I. And I think that's helpful for us. Because if you're like me, you face temptations daily. And I suspect all of our temptations, some are similar. Some of them are probably very different. And things that tempt you don't tempt me, and things that tempt me aren't very tempting to you. And so we face them, temptations to engage in things we shouldn't, temptations to uh, be unforgiving, to harbor bitterness. They've wronged me, and you know what? I'm not going to forgive them. Temptations to be selfish. That's probably one we all deal with, or to be self-consumed. It's about me and not other people. Those are temptations that we face. We all face temptations on a daily basis. And if we're alive in this world, we're going to face them. And Jesus then becomes a pattern for us, a model for us how to resist those temptations. Now, I'm much more familiar with the Matthew passage and the Luke passage than I was with the Mark one. And so in my uh, thinking, this, as I've been studying this, my, temp my understanding of the temptations was Jesus fasted for 40 days, and then at the end of that, three temptations came against him. But notice how Mark words it here. Mark demonstrates to us that all along the way, Jesus was being tempted. He was tempted for 40 days through the whole process of things. Three examples are given to us. We can assume that similar ways is how he was being tempted throughout the entire process. But this was a 40-day period of temptation that the Lord went to. And Mark doesn't give us too much detail into them. But however they came against him, these were, in, these were temptations that Jesus endured, further enabling him to identify with us. And so remember, he identified with us in baptism, right? We saw that last week. Well, he identifies with us in temptation as well. Now let's look a little more closely 
at this period of temptation. First off, look at verse 12. It says, the Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. The Spirit drove Jesus into the desert. Now that word drove, in the original language, in the original uh, New Testament was written in Greek, primarily in Greek. In the original language, that word, it means to cast out and to do so violently and with great force. It's the same word used later on in this, in this chapter to describe Jesus driving demons out of an individual, to drive out. And so then the idea is that the Holy Spirit forcefully compelled Jesus to go into the desert where he would be tempted. And so then I bring this out. It's no accident that Jesus ended up there. And it's no accident that this period of temptation came against him. The Spirit forcefully compelled him to go there. G. Campbell Morgan, who's wonderful, he describes it this way. He said, the driving forth uh, forth was like this. This was no leisured, meditative walk, but it was swift. It was impetuous movement as of one driven irresistibly forth so that there could be no halting. And so this wasn't some accident that Jesus appeared out there, nor was it some casual, you know, walk. I think I'll make my way out there. The Holy Spirit drove him. Now make sure you can understand this because the Holy Spirit, the same one that came and anointed Jesus in the passage earlier, is now driving him into the wilderness in the very, very next account. And I think all of us would agree that the first experience would be a nice, pleasant experience. Oh, the Holy Spirit wants to come upon me and bless me with his presence and affirm who I am. We would all enjoy that, wouldn't we? But it's the same Holy Spirit that drives him into the wilderness where he will undergo temptation. That part of things doesn't sound very fun to me. Does it sound fun to you? Certainly not. We would like the anointing. We're not so interested in what's going to come with the period of temptation. And my point is this. My point is that the same Holy Spirit is involved in both instances. I bring it up because in our culture, and I think in American Christianity in particular, we have developed this thinking, even a theology has developed, that good times are from God and bad times are from the devil. Not so. Here we see that the Holy Spirit is directly involved in driving Jesus into what I think a lot of us would agree are bad times. That it's the same Spirit driving Jesus into the wilderness for this time of temptation. So that's the first point. Secondly, why drive Jesus into the wilderness at all? Seems kind of mean. If you know that he's going to be tempted there, it seems kind of mean to put somebody through that situation. So what's the, spirit, the Spirit's purpose in this? Well, in the previous account, the one of the baptism, he identified with humanity. Here again, he identifies with sinners in temptation. He identifies with sinners in temptation. Hebrews chapter 4. We'll put it up on the screen. It says this, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. And again, I'll remind you, how did Jesus overcome that temptation? He didn't do so utilizing his supernatural powers. He did so in the very same way that you and I can overcome temptation. There's two things that are available to each one of us that are believers in Jesus Christ, and that is the Word of God and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. The Word of God and the empowering of the Holy Spirit, and that's what Jesus relied on to have victory there in the wilderness. And so when the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness, this isn't some kind of job interview for Jesus. All right, you want to be the Messiah? Let's see how you do with temptation. If you pass this test, will let you be the Messiah. It, it was very clear they knew that Jesus was going to pass this test. This temptation was to prove that Jesus would not fail, that he was indeed the one that the Father was well pleased, that he was the absolutely sinless one. It's as if the Father is saying this, look, watch, watch my son. No matter what Satan throws at him, he honors me and he walks in obedience to me. And as I said earlier, if you're alive in this world, you're going to face temptation. If you're a believer in this world, you're likely going to face more temptations than the unbeliever is going to. Temptations and testings are inevitable for the believer. And I think it's important to understand it's not a sin to be tempted. The sin lies in yielding to temptation. And Jesus models for us the key to resisting temptation. 
Again, be able to see through the lies of the temptation. And every temptation essentially puts lies out in front of us. You're tempted toward this. You better give into it or you're just going to suffer and you'll go crazy if you don't. And so that's a lie. And every temptation that comes our way, you know, your wife doesn't love you the way she should love you. And yet this other young lady, look how she's noticing you. That's the temptation. And it's put out there. And it'll be better for you, if you et cetera, et cetera. It's all a lie. And so the first thing that we need to do is see through the lie. And so what do we do? Do we turn on Oprah? Is she going to tell us the truth? Certainly not. I don't even think she's on TV anymore. Do we go to modern culture? Do we pick up our magazine, you know what that is, with paper and stuff, at the front of a, a ca- like a cash register place? And we, we get our wisdom from these places? No, we go to the Word of God. Because the Word of God reveals wisdom and truth to us. And so we have this lie, we compare it to the Word of God. Now we know what we're to do. All right, Oprah's wrong. The magazine is wrong. You know, this thing, this counselor that I went to is wrong because the Word of God says this. We know what the truth is. But that doesn't mean we're done with temptation, does it? Because the next step is, Holy Spirit, allow me to walk in that truth, which is exactly what Jesus did. He quotes the word of God to Satan when he presents the lie. Satan even, we had to be careful with this, he even presents the word of God. You know, the word of God says this, Jesus, didn't you know that? Out of context, he twists it. And Jesus corrects his understanding. But we go to the word of God because that's the place of truth. And then we rely on the Holy Spirit that we might have the power to walk in that truth. Once we know the truth, or once we have been reminded of the truth, we turn to the Holy Spirit for empowerment. And the Holy Spirit gives us the power to say no to ungodly desires. Something we don't have prior to being a believer. Sometimes we say no. Unbelievers say no to things, sure. But it's typically because my mom will ground me or it's because I'll lose my job or it's because I'll end up in jail and I don't want to do those things. We have an internal motivator as Christians. It's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit changes us from this place of, well, I don't want to do that because I don't want to get caught and I don't want to get in trouble. And what begins to develop in us, I don't want to do that because I don't want to break fellowship with God. That's an internal motivator, and it's very, very different, and it's much more powerful and much more effective. This is from 2 Timothy. Paul said this, The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people, and it teaches us, it gives us the power to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Isn't that a glorious passage for Christians? Okay, good. This is wonderful news for any one of us that is trying to walk with the Lord and struggling along. This is fantastic news. I can't believe you're not excited about this, all right? Because he teaches us, he empowers us, he enables us to say no to ungodly desires. All right, second key point then that we learn also from the the book of Hebrews about temptation. Regarding the temptation of Christ that Mark is just sort of skimming over here is that because Jesus was tempted, he's able to sympathize with us. As we're being tempted, Hebrews 2 says that he is able to help in that time of temptation. And though it may not feel this way, when we are in the midst of some great temptation, the Bible is clear, we do not have to give in to that temptation. Sometimes temptation feels like it comes on so strong and we'll never be able to get past it without giving into it. The Bible teaches something very, very differently. Jesus is able to sympathize with us in our temptations. And I love what the Apostle Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians. He says this, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God's faithful. God's faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Listen, if you're a Christian, you never have to give in to temptation again. You never have to give in to temptation again because he always provides that way of escape. And as you seek him for his direction and his will and his enabling and his strengthening, suddenly he'll open up your eyes and you'll see, hey, there's a doorway out of this this room. This place where this temptation is coming so strongly against me, I can leave here if I want to so that the temptation will go away. He promises to help us. I think that's great news. Let's go on to verse 14. It says, well, it doesn't say this. I'm going to tell you this. Uh, Verse 14, now there's actually a period 
of about 10 months, nine months between verse 13 and verse 14. And so John, excuse me, Mark, he goes right from this scenario about the temptation and he goes into what is called the, the Galilean ministry. That Galilean ministry will go on for almost two years, about 21 months. And John and, and Mark, he skips over it altogether. Um, that ministry that he skips over, it's called the Judean ministry. And it's recorded for us primarily in the book of John. And so the Gospel of John, chapter 1 through about a little more than halfway through chapter 4, that's what's called the Judean ministry. And so Jesus has this baptism. Then there's this Judean ministry, which is in the southern portion of Israel, including Jerusalem. Then he returns back to Galilee, where he'll stay almost two years. All right? And Mark, for whatever reason, skips over that. But in doing so, he skips over the events that we read about in John, where the disciples of John the Baptist leave John and begin to follow Jesus. That's the one where John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Follow him. That's a good passage. Mark, why'd you skip it? He did. Okay, so he skipped that one. Jesus is calling uh, of Philip and Nathaniel. And that's the one where Nathaniel says, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip's like, Look, man, just come. Come see. Or whatever. That's found in John's Gospel. Jesus turning the water into wine. Jesus the first time tearing, uh, throwing over the tables in the temple courts where the people were, uh, the money changers were ripping people off and so on. Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus at night where he says to Nicodemus that you must be born again. That's found in the Judean ministry that for whatever reason Mark chooses to skip over. And one of my favorite stories where Jesus interacts with the Samaritan woman there at the well and essentially leads her to himself. And she goes and becomes an evangelist and missionary to her whole community. That's in John chapter 4. All of those great stories Mark skips over. Notice this. I'll put it up here. This is how John 4.43 begins. This is the end of the Judean ministry. And look, it says, now after two days which is from that particular story, it was about nine months. After two days, he left for Galilee, and when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done down in Jerusalem, and so on. That's where Mark picks up. All right, so Mark chapter 1, verse 14, lines up with John chapter 4, verse 43, and the next nine chapters of the Gospel of Mark, there's only 16 altogether, the next nine chapters are going to be Jesus' Galilean ministry. And it's very different in Galilee than it is from Jerusalem. Even today, it's very different in the Galilean region. The Galilean region was about half Jew, half Gentile. And the Jews lived in their villages, the Gentiles lived in their own villages, and it was basically a working class community. Down in Jerusalem, in that area, it was just the religious elite, essentially, that lived down there and those that did services for the religious elite. Uh, elite. And it was almost all Jewish down there. Jesus is going to go back to Galilee. He's about a year now into his public ministry. He's going to spend about two years, with the exception of going down to celebrate the feast in Jerusalem. He's going to spend 21 months up in Galilee. And this is what we read, verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, the John he's referring to is John the Baptist. All four gospels give us information about the arrest of John the Baptist. A couple of them go on to tell us about how John was actually executed. They tell us why John was arrested. So you can go back and you can look at those passages. John essentially called out uh, the political leader, Herod, and the woman he was living with as his wife was actually his brother's wife. Uh, and John called them out for the sin that they were involved in. And they didn't like it. And so, you know, American rights and all that kind of stuff, they had him arrested. They put him in jail. They left him in jail for about a year. And then eventually, Mark chapter 6 tells us they had John uh, beheaded or executed um, there as well. And so picking up from there, we see after John was arrested, following John's arrest, but before that execution I mentioned, Jesus departs from Judea and he makes his way back to Galilee, as it says here. 
There's basically three regions in Israel. Again, Israel is kind of like a rectangle. The, the uppermost part of the rectangle is uh, Galilee. Uh, sort of a center swath would be Samaria, and then the southern portion would be Judea. And all of those regions are very, very differently, uh, different. Regarding Galilee, Galilee uh, was made up of over 200 villages. How about that? Over 200 villages in the Galilee region. Um, Josephus tells us, he was a Jewish historian of the first century, he tells us that none of those villages had less than 15,000 inhabitants. And so if that indeed is correct, 200 villages with at least 15,000 people in, in each of those villages, there's a lot of people there. All right, I think I did the math and it's like 3 million people or so. 3 million or so, both Jews and Gentiles living in that particular region. This is the area Jesus grew up in. Jesus grew up in Nazareth, which is in the Galilee region. Nazareth isn't that close to the Galilee Sea. It's probably about uh, 40 or 50 miles away from it. Maybe that's a little too many. Maybe let's just say 30 miles away from it. It's inland. And so Jesus isn't a fisherman because there's no seas around where he lived or lakes around where he lived. He was a carpenter. That's what his uh, father did and that's what he did, his earthly father did. But in and around the Galilee itself, the Sea of Galilee, in the Galilee region, there are all of these villages. Jesus lives a little bit more inland in the area of Nazareth. And now he returns to that region. But he doesn't go back to Nazareth. There is one passage. He goes back. He teaches in the synagogue. The people run him out of town. You had a little kid who lived around the street. Nobody's interested in you. And Jesus says, you know, the scripture says correctly, that a prophet is with, not without honor in his hometown. And Jesus makes his way over to the area around the Sea of Galilee, and his adopted home from that point on becomes the city of Capernaum, which is where the next account is going to take place there. We'll talk about it when we get to it. But he makes his way to the area of Capernaum. Capernaum was the home of Peter uh, and others who we're going to be encountering in a few moments here. And he goes there, notice, and he proclaims the gospel of God. Now, I said last week, that the book of Mark is a little bit different from Matthew and John and Luke in that, that Mark focuses more on what Jesus did than on what Jesus said. But that doesn't mean that Mark doesn't take note of the importance of the things Jesus said. And he doesn't minimize the ministry that Jesus had in teaching because Mark's quick to point out that first and foremost, the focus of Jesus' ministry was proclaiming the good news of God. The focus of Jesus' ministry is primarily the gospel. And he'll stress the works that Jesus did, but he does not minimize that Jesus preached. Look down at verse 29 in chapter 1 for a moment there. If you have little headings in your Bible, most of us do, I imagine, it'll say something like Jesus heals many or something like that. Um, Jesus did heal many. But notice in that same passage how Jesus sort of reacts to the people's response to his healing many. It says in, in Mark 1.34, And he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many who had demons. Now you can imagine that would attract a crowd, wouldn't it? Yeah, if people that were sick or had demons and things like that were in your life, and they went to see this Jesus fella, and they came back completely healed and told you about it, you were like, what? we got to go see this guy tomorrow. And crowds would come out, and lots of people came out to see them. Now, I want you to notice Jesus' response, though, because it says in verse 35, when Jesus sees all these crowds coming out, he takes off. And it says, in rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed, and he went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And, 38, a little bit later in the chapter, it said, and he said to them, let us go to the next set of towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came. That was his primary ministry focus, was to proclaim the good news, to proclaim the gospel. Jesus was a preacher who worked many miracles. He was not a miracle worker who sometimes preached. He was a preacher who worked many miracles. And the message that he proclaims, Mark's going to go on to tell us what it is. And so you notice here, he says, the time is fulfilled. These are Jesus' words. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's Jesus' specific message. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And let's break those down a little bit. Break it down, as the kids like to say. 
Uh, let's break it down a little bit here. Starting in verse 15, it says, The time is fulfilled is where we'll begin here. Now, there's two different Greek words. Kids are probably loving this. This is great. Did you hear all the Greek words he shared? Two different Greek words here. Uh, I taught high school, and I'm sorry. I didn't teach little people. I'm, I'm working on it here. One refers to time in the sense of like a, a season of a person's life. And so sometimes as I'm getting older, I say this more. Well, in my day, I'll say that. Or, it, you know, in my time, we used to do this or whatever. That's the, the idea of that usage of the word. The other usage of the word, it's a Greek word, it's kairos. It refers to a fixed and definitive time where things are brought to a head. And so that's the word Jesus uses here. And so when Jesus says the time is at hand, he's saying, look, now is your time of opportunity. Don't miss it. Now is the time. Don't miss it because the kingdom of God is at hand. And the events that he has in mind, Jesus might be thinking back here to Daniel's 70th week of prophecy. And we've looked at that a little bit together here. You can look. It's Daniel chapter 9. I'll read a portion of it. It says, Know therefore and understand. So hold on. Let me give you a little context. In the book of Daniel, the children of Israel have been taken out of Israel and taken captive into a foreign land. Daniel the prophet enters onto the scene and he proclaims that there's going to be a day when the children of Israel will return uh, to the land and so on and so forth. Then in that whole context of things, he says, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one. Now we've looked at that word anointed one. That refers to, that refers to the Messiah. That's Jesus. A prince there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And so the key words there is where it says, uh, from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem. Well, we have that event in Scripture. It's found in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, where this foreign leader gives the Jewish people, Nehemiah in particular, the permission, the decree, to go and rebuild Jerusalem. And so from that day on, and there's, Sir Walter Anderson was the first who really pointed this out, if you translate the, the Jewish calendar, which is a 360-day calendar, to um, our Gregorian calendar, which is 365, and you break it out into days from when that decree went forth, and it comes right up into the time of Christ. It, in actuality, it comes right up to Palm Sunday. It's pretty remarkable. And so Jesus may have this idea in mind when he says, the definitive moment in time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. But even if he doesn't specifically have that moment, that day, and that's a day where Jesus says, look, if I tell these people to be quiet, the, the rocks themselves will cry out because the prophecy said that when he presents himself, he would be proclaimed and praised and so on. Anyhow, all of that being said, what Jesus is essentially saying is this, now is the time for those hearing this message to begin responding to this message. Paul the Apostle would write in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, for God says that just the right kairos, at just the right definitive moment in time, I heard you. On the day of salvation, I help you. Indeed, the right time is now, and today is the day of salvation. Jesus is saying what preachers say all the time. Look, this message requires a response. It, re it requires a response, and it's not something that can be put off to some other time because today is the day of salvation. Right now is the time to respond because the kingdom of God is at hand. And what's the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is God's reign in this world. And in his first coming, it's God's reign in the heart of his people. And Jesus is saying it has begun. It is at hand. And in order for his listeners to receive it, Two things are going to have to happen. You can look in your Bibles there. Repentance and belief in the gospel. In order for uh, his hearers to receive the reign of Christ in their lives, two things are going to have to happen. Repentance and believing in the gospel. Because if Jesus is going to reign in the hearts of these people, it has to begin in the place of repentance and belief in the gospel. And the same thing is true for you and I. Now often when I think of repentance... I think of the start of someone's Christian faith. That they're sitting in a room somewhere, they go to some crusade somewhere, they're driving in their car, they're listening on the radio somewhere, and somebody says, you need to repent. 
and start your faith with Jesus or something like that. And so we begin to associate the idea of repentance with the coming to salvation experience. That's not what the word means. Now, that kind of experience is sort of this brokenness, this sorrow for your sin. And there is a word that is used to describe that multiple times in the New Testament. That's not the word that is used here. The word that is used here, again, it's a Greek word. It's the word metanoia. And it's where we get the word metamorphosis, where something is completely changed. And it refers to a change in one's thinking, a change in one's mind, causing them now to move in a new direction. That's what Jesus is describing here. Metanoia. First things first, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Change your mind. Now, why do we have to change our mind? Here's why we have to change our mind. Because our default position is sin. Every one of us. Recently, something happened to my computer. I walked back in the room. I thought somebody went in there and was playing with it. Everything changed on my computer back to the default position. All the pictures and now there's some, I don't know what it is, a desert or something. is like my screensaver. And I'm like, who put that there? Or whatever. Because some update happened and it went everything back to the default position. And I have to go back and reset everything just the way that I like it or whatever. Your default position, my default position, every single person that has ever lived on this earth's default position is towards sin. It's towards selfishness. It's toward my own direction and doing my own thing. And no one's going to tell me. And Jesus has to intervene into that. And if Jesus is going to reign in each of our hearts, then we have to have a change of thinking. Our default position can no longer be self. It has to be him and his kingdom. You understand where we're going here? And so he says, first and foremost, repent, rethink, change your heart, change your mind, because you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you first do. And that word see there, the idea is not look at it with your eyes. You cannot embrace the kingdom of God. You cannot receive the kingdom of God. You cannot understand the kingdom of God. And you can't walk in the kingdom of God as long as you're going after self and sin. And so starting point, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. And in order to be eligible for that, to enter that kingdom here on the earth and ultimately in heaven, there has to be a turning away from sin and self. And then he goes on, and believing in the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, my last point for today, it'll take us about 40 minutes. It says, believe, it says, believe in the gospel. I think you should circle that word in. I, th- I think it's that significant. It doesn't say believe the gospel. All right? There's a, and I think there's a big difference between believe the gospel and believe in the gospel there. Now, certainly there's a set of doctrinal beliefs that are required of a person to understand those particular beliefs in order to be a Christian. You've got to recognize who Jesus Christ is, what he has done, why you need a work in your own life for the forgiveness of your own sins. There's doctrinal beliefs that are required here. I just don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. What Jesus is saying here is believe in the gospel. And I think the difference between them is, for instance, believing a chair. You've heard this analogy maybe. Believing a chair can support your weight and actually sitting down on that chair, demonstrating your belief that that chair can support your weight. Jesus calls, his call 2,000 years ago, right up until this morning, is an appeal not only to accept it as an intellectually accurate statement. Yes, in my mind, maybe somewhere in my heart, I believe that Jesus is God in the flesh, come to give his life for my sins. That's all like sort of intellectual knowledge that we can hold on to. But Jesus' call 2,000 years ago and today is to us that we would build our life upon that belief, that we'd build our life upon it. So his invitation goes far beyond knowledge. It goes far beyond agreement in the mind. And instead, it speaks of a relationship of trust and dependence. Catch that, please. I think this is the most important thing of this morning. It goes far beyond knowledge and agreement of mind, and it speaks of of relationship of trust and dependence. Believing in the gospel is ultimately taking Jesus at his word. It's believing that God is kind, is the kind of God that Jesus told us about. It's believing that God so loves us and this world that he would make any sacrifice to bring us back to himself. It's believed that that which sounds too good to be true truly is, uh, really is true indeed. 
and it's building our lives upon it. And so somebody can say they believe the gospel, they can say that they're a Christian, but if all of their decisions are based on their default method of thinking, sin, self, human wisdom, sight, not faith, is their life demonstrating they've placed their faith in the gospel? It's not, correct? Please, you don't have to agree if you don't agree. Um, tell your neighbor later that, you know, I don't know, that guy's off the mark here. But if you say, yes, I'm a Christian, but all of your life is, is based on self and sin and sight, not faith, well, is your life evidencing at the very least that you're a Christian? It was interesting. I was looking up this idea of the gospel in the scriptures and in the New Testament. And the word comes up a whole bunch of times, as you can imagine, in the New Testament. And it's linked very often to other words. I'm not sure if they're verbs or, or something. You can tell me after I explain what they are. But it'll talk about the truth of the gospel. It'll talk about the hope of the gospel. It talks about the gospel of peace. It talks about the God's promise of the gospel. Salvation, it talks about, associated with the gospel. And then it talks about uh, immortality associated with the gospel. It's really interesting. You can go back. I have the passage if you want. I'll share them with you to save you time and things like that. You can come see me later. But let me put all those to the question then. If we're not walking in the truth of the gospel and making decisions according to that truth, are we really believing in the gospel? And if our hope becomes the things of this world, and so success on that next test, if I get it, I'll be delighted and happy. If not, I'll be miserable. Or landing that job or getting that relationship or finally getting that raise or whatever. If all of our hope is dependent on those things, are we truly believing in the gospel of hope? And if our peace comes from somewhere other than God, are we believing in the gospel of peace? And the answer is no. And you still may be a Christian, but you're not living out and believing in and walking in the gospel. What you're believing in, and to say that a different way that I think really helps us grasp it, what you're trusting in or placing your trust in is something other than the reign of God in your hearts. And so there's a big difference. That word in is an important word, I think, in that passage. Repent, change your thinking, and believe in the gospel. Step out in faith. Now, Mark will go on in these next couple of verses, and we're only going to look at a portion of it today. He's going to go on and transition to a group of men that are faced with that exact situation. They're faced with whether they will put their intellectual belief system into action, or if they would continue to maintain control of their own lives and continue as the ones who would determine when and how much to the Lord they give of themselves. And this, I think, is a scenario that every one of us that considers ourselves a Christian will find ourselves in, uh, maybe not daily, but regularly, will find ourselves in the same scenario where the Lord challenges us to step out in our faith. And so let me read verses 16 to 20, and we're going to come back next week and look at these verses in greater detail. I just want to draw you a couple points. It says, Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets, they followed Jesus. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they followed him. Quite, an inter quite a meeting, huh? This isn't the first time Jesus met these individuals. I think that's really important to understand uh, because this would be quite peculiar. Um, you're going, where with who? You don't even know that guy. Sit back down on the boat or whatever it may be. Jesus, remember, this is a year into Jesus' ministry. And he had already encountered these guys. They had seen him. The word had gone out about all the things he did down in Jerusalem. Um, we read in John chapter 1 these words. The next day again, John was standing there and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin. And two of his disciples left John and began following Jesus there. We have the name of one of them uh, a little bit further on. Verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and follow Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So Andrew, Peter, James, John, they had all met Jesus before. They had listened to Jesus before. They liked what they had to say. When Andrew would go and find his brother, if we could put that back up there, John, I'm sorry. It says there in verse 
41, he says, we have found the Messiah. Is that it there somewhere? All right. He says, we have found the Messiah. Intellectually, he believed the gospel. Jesus is the Messiah. Now Jesus is saying, I want you to believe in the gospel. I want you to leave everything you know. I want you to get out of that boat, and I want you to come and follow me. I want you to be my disciples. And so this call here in the beginning of Mark, it's not a, it's not a call to become believers. It's rather a call to become followers of Jesus. And Peter and Andrew, James and John, they saw Jesus preach many times. They agreed with what he had to say. The report of him went out all over the world. No doubt, as Andrew did, they all acknowledged that Jesus was God's anointed one. What's going on here in this passage is a call for these men to now walk in that belief and to take a step of faith and to move forward in obedience. And Jesus is ever doing that. Jesus wants you to daily take steps of faith and to walk in obedience. And so the question you have to ask yourself with regularity, or you should be asking yourself with regularity, is this. Am I stepping out in faith into the unknown? And am I walking daily in obedience? Because when Jesus calls you to obey him, when disobedience seems like the more logical decision, do you obey anyway? I told you a dumb situation of mine when I was younger. I got pulled over by a police officer uh, because I had committed a road thing or like a violation or something like that. And the first thought that came to my mind, my default sin nature, was to lie my way out of, you know, this situation so the guy would let me go. And God was so gracious, the guy was like, that's dumb. He knew right away. The police officer knew right away. He said, you lying to me? Yes, I am. I'm sorry. You know, and I got caught in my sin. If I didn't get caught in my sin, I'd probably lie the next time. Uh, or whatever, but God was gracious. He let me get caught in my particular sin. And so it was dealt with. Disobedience seemed like the logical way to get out of that ticket. But the Lord would call me as a disciple of his to be honest and to just say, yeah, you know, I didn't feel like going all the way around town to get here. And so I made the illegal U-turn. All right, you see what I'm saying? Disobedience seems more logical. If that is the case, do you obey anyhow? When Jesus says to walk in obedience and forgive someone, do you do that? Or do you say, yeah, I know Jesus says that, but that doesn't apply to me. And it certainly doesn't apply to a situation like this. And that's why I'm justified in doing what I want to do instead of what God calls me to do. And so when those circumstances are there, do you obey anyhow? When Jesus says to take a radical step that goes against everything you even want to do and everyone else is telling you to do, do you follow the Lord and take that radical step? That's what Jesus is calling these disciples to. That's what Jesus calls us to uh, on a daily basis. And for these men, it meant getting up and following Jesus as his disciples. For us, it might be some big thing like that. That's a big thing, certainly so. Or it might simply be, Greg, get up and go do the dishes. Instead of sitting down here and doing what you want to do, get up and go do what you need to do in this particular household so that there's peace or whatever it may be. Big things, little things, whatever the scenario, it's really just a matter of scope and scale. It's just a matter of degree. All right, Will you obey one way or the other? Because the crux of the matter always remains the same. Will you take Jesus at his word and will you obey? Will you put your faith in, your trust in, believe in, remember other words, his words and step out trusting that he knows best and he'll lead you for your best? Will you do that? Well, I got a whole bunch more. We're, we're way over time already. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop there for a second, but I think I've given you something to take away with you. Search out your heart. And I think this is really important for those of us that have been Christians for a little while. All right, if we're a brand new Christian, you're probably dealing with stuff like this every single day as you're trying to figure things out and you're kind of wrestling with your old man and putting him or her, I guess, to death. But if you've been a Christian for a while, maybe you haven't dealt with these kinds of things In a bit, I'm going to suggest to you we should be. This is something that we should be wrestling with on a daily basis as the Lord calls us to follow him in each one of these areas that may not be comfortable for us to follow him, but it's for our best. Will you obey in those particular circumstances? And so begin, and this is it, I'm done. Begin 
asking yourself that question to this afternoon, tomorrow, when you sit down, you have your quiet time, open, open up that quiet time with just a silent prayer, out loud prayer, whatever you want to do, and just say, Lord, open up my eyes to an area that you want to stretch me. Open up an eyes, my eyes to an area where perhaps I've been doing my own thing and not even giving you the opportunity to speak into that area. Lord, would you speak into that area and give me the courage to walk in faith? And God will do that. God's faithful. You'll be in the car driving to work and blam, there you go. Here's your opportunity. And that's good. That's growth. That's what we want All right, every single day. Amen, friends? All right. We'll pick up there in verse 16. So keep reading. I don't know if we'll finish a chapter. I've been saying that for three weeks. Um, so read ahead. Father, I thank you for this, uh, this wonderful picture. Lord, I can just picture each one of us sitting there on the edge of the shore observing and watching. Maybe a little notebook kind of taking these things down and processing it. And Lord, in another sense, you want to put us right there in the boat alongside Andrew and Simon, James, John, Zebedee, anybody else that may have been there. And you want to call us to step out in faith and to leave everything that we know and all of that we're familiar with and everything that we're comfortable with and our default positions and to relinquish ourselves to your lordship in every area of our lives. And so, Lord, uh, would you be gracious this week to do just a really a remarkable work in the hearts of your children in this room. And Lord, that each one of us would just experience a real intimacy with you this week that maybe we haven't experienced in quite a while. And there'll be a sweetness of fellowship with you. And both a real challenge from you, but also sort of this I'm with you, I'm coming alongside of you, come on, you can do this sort of feeling as well. So Lord, minister to us. Bless us with your presence this week. Use us in the lives of other people. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like more information about the church, please visit ccmercer.com or come worship with us in Ewing, New Jersey on Sundays at 10 a.m.